Let us pray. Let your merciful ears, O Lord, be open to the prayers of your humble servants, and that we may receive what we ask. Teach us by your Holy Spirit to ask only those things that are pleasing to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you and the same Spirit lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the book of Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Romans. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Please stand. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depths of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what is sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great day. We thank you for the great gift of your word and uh, what you have done for us and share with us. And ask that you uh, bless our hearts and minds and to receive from you now your name. Amen. If you're new here, I should probably say at this point that it's not usually this much of a peat thing being in here, but this, we just had a lot of vacations wrap up. All of this happened at the same time today, so you just have a lot of me today. So that's both, a, maybe it's a celebration for some and a, a mourning for others. Anyway, I'm glad you got to hear from some of the youth about our mission trip. Again, hopefully some will be sharing in future uh, Sundays yet. I get to share now one of my favorite moments from that trip. It uh, comes especially on Tuesday night, but really it, it requires the whole day in some way. Tuesday of the trip was really the day that everything was clicking so well. Uh, Max made this point that we actually really didn't know any details to what we were doing uh, until we got there Sunday and worked all of it out. Until then, we just kind of knew, hmm, physical labor. Uh, and then we knew finally what we were doing, so start practicing it, figuring it out on Monday. So by Tuesday, finally, we were actually making really big progress. 
everyone was working really hard. We knew what we were doing. All sorts of things were getting done really quickly. It felt really good. Uh, then after, that evening after we had had dinner, we actually went out to ice cream. We were told by some of the locals this was the best ice cream place around. Uh, it turns out when there's only two ice cream places around, the best doesn't mean what you might hope. Uh, I'm told it was still pretty decent, though. Uh, then we got back to church that evening, and we had evening prayer together. We did the evening prayer liturgy. Uh, we, we shared what had happened in the day. We prayed in small groups. Everyone was involved in that. Our youth, our adults, even the adults from PPM joined us for that time. Uh, it was it a was really great time of prayer for each other, sharing about all those things. And then when all of that was done, nearing bedtime, but not quite, we had time yet for one of our big trip traditions in, in our youth group, uh, which is the broom dance. The broom dance is something I learned from Pete Fredrickson 10 years ago on a mission trip, and it keeps coming back for these. After all these years, I can say I am one of the leading experts in the broom dance, and that as much as you would like to be part of it, most of you will fail repeatedly and forever. Um, it's not because it requires any athletic skill or dancing ability. It's sort of a weird riddle thing. You just got to figure it all out. Uh, so the youth took that very seriously, figuring out how do I do the broom dance. Uh, and that time, it's so full of jokes and laughter and amusement, and that is great, but really the highlight of that whole evening by that point um, was just that great sense of connection and community. It went through all the prayer, it went into the, the broom dance time. The broom dance time was so much fun, the youth made sure everyone had a chance, and that meant they found all the adults, including those PPM leaders, but they found all the youth. Everyone was going to get a chance. Everyone was noticed. Everyone was cheered if they figured out the dance, or we sort of mourned those who failed in a sense. Uh, there's just something so special and unique about that whole type of moment. It comes after a day's hard work, but good. After that prayer, during that prayer and sharing together, then with all that just laughter and hilarity, there's so much joy and love and fellowship. It's pretty hard to actually describe just how awesome that piece of time was for us. So this summer here, we are working through the book of Romans. We're following uh, the readings as assigned to us in the lectionary. Uh, and today's passage in from Romans 8, it's actually really connected uh, with Pastor Christian's sermon last week. And actually after this, the next few sermons are still in Romans chapter 8. So we've got a really tight block of very interconnected messages here. The last week when Christian began his sermon, one of the things um, he brought up was just when we consider our lives, at some point we think about the difficulty and the struggles we face, um, and yet the fact that we are never alone, that God is always with us. And, and Pastor Christian said, and from what Paul is saying here in Romans 8, um, that it is, of course, the presence of God, especially um, the, the saving and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that really makes all the difference. It makes life not just something that we survive, but it is something that is worthwhile. And that idea is really key to our passage again today. The powerful and saving presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives makes all the difference. It does mean so much and makes so much of us. Thinking about uh, that Tuesday night that we shared together on the trip, I think moments like that um, what's really going on there. I think those moments are possible because of the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's his work to turn us away from ourselves and to God and to each other. It's his gift of righteousness in our lives that gives life and work meaning. Um, it's especially his gift, as we find in our passage today, um, that we have the same Father. We are united together in one family as children of God. The work of the Spirit really makes all the difference. 
So as we move into our passage this morning, um, the first verses you see, they don't really sound a whole lot like any of that. They aren't full of the plain good news. Well, really what you're seeing throughout this passage, not only in this part, um, that Paul is going to spend a lot of time explaining this great news of the Spirit dwelling in us. But part of his explanation of that is to explain kind of the opposite side, what is contrasted with this, what we were before. And this is where he begins. So in verse 7, Paul says that the mind that is set on the flesh, it's, it's hostile to God. Even that it cannot submit to God's law and those in the flesh cannot please God. This is a really serious reminder. Paul is explaining what is true of everyone who has not yet known the saving work of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They cannot submit to God's law, meaning they really can't live according to God's righteousness. They can't truly please God with what they do, no matter how amazing it might seem to be. A quick reminder as we're thinking about what Paul's saying here. He's talk, Paul's talking about the flesh. And when he says flesh, he's not talking about simply our physical bodies. He actually uses different words in the Greek when he wants to just talk about our physical selves. The word that we tend to end up translating as flesh, it's really Paul's way of talking about humanity's sinful nature. It's, it's um, a word that's all about when humans are given over only into sin. And here in this passage, Paul is adamant about just how corrupting and controlling our flesh is. It is a whole mindset, a permanent bent away from God. Whether or not we understand it, we're actively hostile to God. And whether we would intend it or not, there's nothing we do, no matter how good it might seem, that can actually please God. Because in the end, it's all about the flesh. It's all about sin, about being turned away from God and toward ourselves. The current normal state of humans is the complete opposition to God. It's really bad. Um, and that is Paul's point here, to show us just how bad and hard that is. But then it's a really big, really important point. Paul continues on and he says, that is no longer true of us. Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So he isn't saying all this other stuff to leave us scared or feeling hopeless. He's saying that to show just how amazing what is actually true for us is, how amazing it is. In the flesh, nothing we can do pleases God. We're hostile to him, but we are not in the flesh. We are in the spirit. So those things are not true of us anymore. Here, however, we can come to a pretty big question or challenge in the text. I know I did. Notice Paul says here, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. When I first started reading this passage, that struck me, and I was like, well, this, this is not helpful, Paul. It just kind of leaves us wondering, well, is the Spirit in me or not? Is he dwelling in me? How do we know? If we take Paul just as it is, as it sounds in this text to us, it can sound a little bit ominous. I mean, if I'm in the flesh, everything I do is broken and hostile to God. I don't want that. I want to be in the Spirit. But it almost sounds like Paul is saying, yeah, if you are in the Spirit. So it really helps to understand that, that that's actually not what Paul is trying to say here. He's not questioning whether or not his readers or we are in the Spirit. He doesn't mean that if in like a conditional way. He's not saying, well, maybe you are and maybe you aren't in the Spirit. This is actually just part of the way Paul is arguing, his rhetoric here. What he really means is something more like if in fact... And that is the case, the Spirit dwells in you. Some scholars and some translations actually just go with it much more easily, um, making that if should be a, a since. Um, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So Paul isn't saying to his, reading, his readers, maybe you don't have the Spirit after all, shucks. He's saying you do have the Spirit. You are not in the flesh. But maybe that's not helpful enough. 
the question can still be there for us. The two options we have are pretty stark. Either you're in the flesh, you can't please God, you can't work righteousness, or you are in the Spirit and have the Spirit of God in you. So the question can still remain, but Paul, do I really have the Spirit of God inside me? It's not a small question. It is central to our lives. How do we know? How do we answer? kind of wish, this is one of those things that we wish as Christians sometimes for like a Christian litmus test or a Spirit of God litmus test. Just dab the special piece of paper on you. Hey, it came out red. You're good. You have the Spirit. Of course, there's nothing like that in that way. To be clear, as we're thinking about this, though, Paul, he maybe would say more than we wish, but he's not trying to leave us wondering or scared. He's actually really confident that his readers have the Spirit or that they will know with real clarity and certainty that they don't have the Spirit here. He doesn't expect this to be a lingering question. And that is because there isn't some special trick to having God's Spirit. There's no chance involved in it. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is completely tied to the saving work of God in Jesus Christ. And Paul has actually been explaining the saving work throughout this letter. So we can go really anything before this, but I think of Romans 3 to help understand this a bit more. I preached on Romans 3 at the start of this series. And in that passage there, Paul's explaining that despite all the sins of humanity, God has revealed his righteousness for us. It is available through faith in Jesus for all who believe. For all who believe in Jesus, God's free gift is our full salvation And Paul explains then throughout uh, this letter, and especially now in chapter 8, part of that great gift of salvation is the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. So how do I know if I have the Spirit in me? Well, it's all about God's work. It's not ours. We don't do anything more than receive God's great gift with, with faith. It's not a faith that we work, not a faith we muster up or somehow make good enough. It's our empty-handed, desperately needy faith. God meets us and fills us, giving us redemption, justification, and the person of the Holy Spirit. If I've turned to God in faith, I have the Spirit. Maybe we have to follow that question briefly. Do I know if I've turned to God in faith? It's, it's not a trick question. It's not meant to be something really hard. It's just something that we, we, we turn, we try. We're not doing something extra special. We aren't having to do something extra good. We aren't responsible to turn to God good enough in some way. All we do is we turn, we try. Really, every Sunday almost, we pray a great prayer of confession together. Praying that confession is a great moment of turning to God in faith. If you're not being forced into it in some way, it is enough. And we pray that prayer all the time. All the time we are turning to God in faith. So you don't have to worry that maybe there was that one time I didn't mean it and it wasn't real. We turn again and again. We receive again and again God's love, blessing, and salvation. We're reminded even in that moment again and again of the promise that the Holy Spirit now dwells in us. So God meets us in our need, in our barest step of faith, and he saves us and gives us himself. So we go back to the passage now. Paul's whole point in in this uh, first few verses is to contrast what our lives were without God when we didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling us with what they are now. So while before our mind was set on the flesh, we were permanently bent away from God and toward ourselves, hostile to God, now it is all the opposite. We're actually bent toward God. We're not hostile. We're not separated from him. We're even children of God, as Paul is saying in this passage. And even more, we can submit to and live out God's righteousness. What we can do pleases God. And this is amazing news. It's a complete reversal. Be careful 
not to make this too small as you think about it either. Sometimes as Christians, it's easy to imagine that those things that we do that please God are really just the churchy things we do. We can think, oh, prayer, memorizing scripture, giving my money, those things can please God now. Yes, they can. So can everything that we do when we are led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So your job, even those annoying spreadsheets or forms, the the really challenging lesson you have to find a way to teach, that new idea that you're trying to pitch and get people on board with, the people you're caring for, the diapers you change, the dishes you have to clean, yes, even the dishes, all of these things can now be pleasing to God. I have three kids, the dishes never end. I need this personally. The Spirit of God dwells in us. Everything we do can be pleasing to God. Everything can be an act of service and worship. Everything can be a sign of his lordship and goodness in this world. Paul continues on again, uh, and there's another contrast. He says, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, he calls the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. All right, that makes sense, Paul. But if you do have Christ in you, and again, Paul isn't questioning, he means since you have Christ in you, Then, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, in some ways, this feels like a pretty sudden shift. We were thinking about how having the spirit means pleasing God before, and now we're thinking about how having the spirit has to do with life and resurrection, if you look at verse 11. Very simply here, Paul is just saying that the big part of the good news of the spirit in us is the good news of resurrection life. He says that the body is dead because of sin. He's just talking about that simple truth that all humans die. Sin means we all die. It's still true for us, even after we've been saved by God. But part of the good news is that death no longer has the final word. God raised Christ from the dead. His spirit is at work in us. The spirit is the guarantee that we too will be raised from the dead. So really what Paul is talking about here is hope. No matter what happens to us, even eventually our deaths, we who have the Spirit now know that we will be raised just like Jesus. We have hope, a sure and certain hope in God and in his plans. Hope for our lives and for the world. God wins. Good prevails. Life does not succumb to death. We will be made like Christ. I think Paul brings this up here because this type of hope is so closely tied with all of these questions about how we live What we do now pleases God, and we have hope that we are made to do this and please God with our lives for more than just the 80 or 90 years we have here, but we have all eternity for this. We have hope that we're not made to know God for only 80 or 90 years, but to know him and be known by him forever and ever. Then coming to verse 12, we find kind of our final main contrasting part. Paul is just saying we could be debtors to the flesh, bound to live according to our sinful nature, and so die, meaning die without hope of resurrection. This is really quite similar to what Paul was already saying at the beginning of the passage. If we live only according to the flesh, we're turned away from God. But again, this isn't who we are anymore. Now we live according to the Spirit. Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can even put to death the deeds of the body. That's kind of an odd phrase in Paul's writings, the deeds of the body. He doesn't mean things like uh, put to death the body. He doesn't mean that the body is bad. I think Paul is trying to say is that the deeds of the body, those are the things that we do only with our body, without the life and the power of the Spirit in and through us. They are things that are ultimately done without God and for ourselves. Or in other words, I think Paul is just finding a unique way to talk about the flesh again. 
But it's by the Spirit that we can put away these things, even put away the flesh, put them to death, and we will live. And this is never meant as simply, you know, staying alive or just keep on living. This is about true life, always and forever with God. It's again about resurrection life. So this is pretty similar to much of what's already been said. But Paul brings it up here again to focus on something really great about all of it. The point of what Paul is saying here, that we live according to the Spirit, it isn't simply now about, hey, you get to be right, or finally you're going to act out righteousness. The point is now we're going to live out who we truly are, who we truly have been made to be. None of this is for show. None of this is pretend. Living by the Spirit, putting to death the flesh, this is who we truly are now. Because of the saving work of God, we are now sons of God. Living by the Spirit is who we are. Now, right away, it can be easy to misunderstand Paul here. He isn't saying that sons are better than daughters or anything like that. Frankly, in modern understanding, we could easily just translate this as sons and daughters of God or children of God, and we'd get the meaning that would make sense. Uh, But it's helpful to know this translation we use, it keeps sons here because that word was really important in Paul's time, very specifically because the sons were the one who would receive the inheritance. As we continue on in this passage, we see that's really important for what Paul is saying. So when he was writing, if he had said sons and daughters, an important part of his argument would have been lost. He needs us to know that we are children of God, children with an inheritance from God. So knowing that, we can continue. We are now children of God because of God's great work through Jesus and the Holy Spirit to save us. So we live according to the Spirit. That is just who we are now. We've been adopted into a new family. We live as members of that family. This is really important. The Holy Spirit is not a spirit of slavery and fear, so that we might try to do right in order to avoid punishment, or to do right so that you know, our oppressive master just won't notice us right now. The Holy Spirit is bestowing the Father's adoption on us. We live rightly as his newly adopted children to please him, to be like him, to show him we love him, to grow in relationship with him. But again, this isn't just things that we're like putting on or pretending. We have been changed fully. This is who we really are now. And the adoption we have, the relationship with the Father that we now have, it isn't meant in just sort of a factual or dispassionate way. Uh, It's not just a nice ideal that we can remember. Also, this adoption isn't something that's like only a legal reality, as if we were adopted, but the Lord of the house who adopted us will never meet us or be with us. It's not only about an inheritance that is just to come long time off. This adoption is deep and real. It is something we can experience even now. By the Holy Spirit in us, we can even cry out, Abba, Father. Now, saying we cry to God, it's a very powerful idea. It's emotional. It's direct. This is something that we know and we feel deep inside of us. And we call God not just Father, but Abba, Father. That, that's the word for Father that so many little children of this time of Paul would have used. So it's a term of closeness, of need, of trust in our Father. It's also what Jesus called out to the Father when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So that we, by the Holy Spirit, cry out this same thing means that we are not second-rate children. We are not Christ, certainly. But we have been brought into a relationship with the Father that in very important ways mirrors the Son's relationship with His Father, His dependence on the Father, His deep relationship with Him that we see throughout His life, the love that they share. 
our adoption is something truly life-changing. We have a new relationship with God, a new identity as his children. And this adoption does come with a full inheritance, though Paul doesn't really explain that any further here. Certainly on his mind is the inheritance of all of God's promises. Everything God ever promised to do, everything God ever promised to make right again, these will come to us. Though we wait now for their final completion, even now we do taste something of the first fruits of these promises. We taste that in things like we no longer need to fear death because Jesus died and Jesus is raised and we will be too. We see that in the family of God that we have here in this church and in other churches and believers around the world. We can be far from perfect, but sometimes we still get glimpses, even for a moment, of of what our whole family will one day be like. That's something that happened for us on Tuesday night of our mission trip. Those moments of joy, of love, of unity and peace. And right now, we know a real relationship with God, our Father. He's always with us, always listening, always loving. Now, this does come with one extra challenge in the very last verse here. We are God's children, and we will be made like his one and only Son. And that means even in some ways suffering with him. More will be said about that next week, because that's where the passage is going. But we can say, yes, today, suffering still happens. But now it is never suffering alone. It's suffering along with Christ. And there's a goal. As we are made like Christ, even in suffering, so we will one day be made like Christ in glory. It's kind of hard to imagine. But maybe it looks a little bit like our Father saying to us, You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Well done. Enter into my joy and my rest. At the beginning, I said that the saving and empowering work of the Holy Spirit in our lives makes all the difference. He works out our adoption and turns us to the Father. He guarantees our future resurrection. He works true the true life of God in us. Even now, we can do what is right. We can turn from what is wrong. Our lives can be pleasing to the Father. This is all just more of the great gift of God for us, of what he has done. And I hope as we think about all these things, uh, our first response is wonder and thanksgiving. Today and every day, may we turn our hearts toward our God and worship for all the great things he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, bringing us into relationship with you and justification and the spirit inside of us. Thank you for your um, grace and truth and all of your love for us in these things. Um, Help us to remember and to worship. Amen.